Welcome to Common Ground Berlin, a talk show encouraging debate and a deeper understanding of hot-button topics in the German capital and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Today's episode is an edited version of our first international live show. We co-hosted the event in Amsterdam with Are We Europe, an independent media group focused on the ever-changing continent and reaching across borders. And the topic we chose for our show on International Podcast Day on September 30th does cross those borders. It was about the far right and their allies ascending to power in Europe, a trend that may be accelerating. Far-right parties, one of them with Nazi roots, recently swept elections in Italy and came in second in Sweden. And as my co-host and Are We Europe founder Mick Terehost noted during the show, they remain a formidable force in other countries across the continent as well. To talk about why the far right is thriving and what role the media and internet play in fueling their propaganda, we're joined by Nina Horacek, who's the correspondent for Viennese city newspaper Falter, and University of Groningen professor Barat Ganesh. Nina and Barat, welcome. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you became experts on the far right and their media prowess and propaganda. Hello, thanks for the invitation. Um, it's not so easy to answer. I think one reason was um, I started working as a journalist in the year 2000. It was the year when the Freedom Party, um, they came into power. They um, formed a government in Austria with the Conservative Party. And the first reason why I started covering this party was because I was the youngest in my magazine, um, just starting and nobody wanted to call them. So it was my job. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you were also a European uh, shortlist or shortlisted for the European Press Prize for your work. Uh, yes. So she's, uh, she's being very modest, but she actually really is an expert who uh, knows a lot about these people that nobody wanted to talk to in her paper. So, <laughs> Bharat? Yeah, so my name is Bharat Ganesh. I'm an assistant professor in media studies at the University of Groningen. I think I started working on this back in 2011 when I was uh, really interested in Islamophobia. I had just moved to the UK to do my graduate school. And watching and monitoring Islamophobia and hate crimes in the UK from 2011 to about 2016, I accidentally started really watching what, what were these kinds of networks doing online. And so I've been studying the way in which the far right's been utilizing social media, particularly by mobilizing racism for, I guess, uh, a little bit over 10 years now. So that's kind of the, the main work that I do is I, I try to understand what role the uh, far-right networks play online and also what role do platforms play in providing space for the far-right. Well, I'm going to start my first question with you and, and take a look at the issue from a little bit of a broader perspective. And so my question is, where in Europe is the far-right the biggest threat? And how big of a threat are we talking about? I mean, could it end the EU? I don't think we can really pin down one country where the far right is the biggest threat. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. The biggest reason is that the far right has been very successful in building linkages across different European countries. So what we see are, for example, youth movements that have a real transnational reach. Right? So they'll get together in France or they get together in Italy, bringing in leaders uh, from youth wings for far right parties from all over Western Europe and elsewhere. Now, 
We can say that there may be certain places where the far right is more of a threat because of the power that they have, right? So here I'm particularly thinking of Poland and Hungary in particular because of the way in which there's been kind of uh, development of control over the media system and the political system. But, you know, the far right is a threat across the entire continent. And I think the reason it's such a big threat is also because what we sort of think of as mainstream parties, but let's just sort of say center right, right wing that are not far right, um, and even center left parties across the continent have actually been sort of utilizing some of the far right's appeal, particularly around kind of scapegoating others and things like that as a way of sort of uh, winning votes and, and mainstreaming their own positions. So could it end the EU? You know, in there, there's all kinds of possible histories we could be in. I think what's sort of disturbing to me at the European level is the extent to which that these parties have also been able to coordinate and have more and more of an influence over a sort of the center-right uh, sort of pan-European parties as well. So I think if there's a lot of far-right leaders in a lot of different countries and you know all the chips fall in the right place, maybe the EU could end. But this is a big institution. I don't think you know this particular trend is going to uh, totally destabilize it. But if we're not vigilant, then, yeah, I mean, I think we could be talking about really serious threats, not necessarily to the European Union, but at least the democratic freedoms we have within it. Nina, in the Netherlands, far-right MP, and I'm going to mispronounce this name now, Thierry Baudet, is, did I do that okay there for, <laughs> for being a non-Dutch person? And his Forum for Democracy Party say that Russian President Vladimir Putin is the, quote, leader of the conservative Europe, or their leader, if you will. And then former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi, you know, he's also made a big deal about his friendship with uh, Putin. So, Nina, is he pulling the strings? Is Putin pulling the strings of all these far-right groups on the continent? I think you have to ask him. Um. <laughs> well, I have him on speed dial. I'll be asking him. <laughs> I don't think that he's pulling the strings. So I think um, he has got lots of useful idiots in Europe. All these parties, like the Freedom Party, had a, even a contract with um, United Russia, the Putin Party. They went to Moscow in December 2016 to sign a contract that they will work together. I don't really know um, if it was just a paper or if they really did something together. Um, and we know that um, the Rassemblement National got some um, money from Russian banks, so there are lots of close ties. And the extreme right really likes Mr. Putin. And also, like many far-right um, activists in Austria, saying it was not Russia attacking the Ukraine, but... Um, the NATO circling Russia, and so Putin had to defend his country. And they also say that um, Putin and China are the only ones who are fighting the globalist. I don't know if you ever heard of the globalist. That's the um, big conspiracy. And um, so what's the, the story the extreme rights, or some of the extreme rights are telling people is, there's a big plan of the globalists destroying um, humanity and homo ideology. But Mr. Putin is the only one who will fight for us. And Nina, um, Soraya already mentioned your article, which was nominated for the European Press Prize. And basically, if I'm just I'm recapping... Getting the, huh? <laughs> I'm getting red. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm recapping the article, you basically looked 
across Europe and you saw that a lot of these far-right parties, but also adjacent organizations and institutions, they sort of use the same playbook in order to get control of the media, and we're talking about also the far right using the media and the internet and sort of these overarching conspiracy theories, these things that cross borders. And you said, okay, there's basically seven steps that these organizations are using in order to gain control of the media and to use that control to obviously win voters and to grow their, their base. Could you, without walking us through the seven mm -hmm. steps, but sort of recapping uh, this playbook, and how you came across it and how that transcends borders. So how you, you looked at Hungary, you looked at Poland, but obviously now it's transcending borders mm -hmm. to the Netherlands, to France, to Italy. Um, how, how is this playbook, which may or may not have been written by Putin, transcending borders? This playbook wasn't only written by me. Um, I'm part of a network of um, journalists from different countries like um, Germany, um, Switzerland, Hungary, Poland, France, Italy. I hope I didn't forget anyone. Yeah, me in Austria. We work together. We're like all focused on the extreme right in our countries. And um, we collected all the information. And in 2019, I tried to find out how how does it work? How does this um, right-wing, extreme-right propaganda machine work? And just a few points. It's like the one very important one is build your own media empire. And that's something where the Freedom Party in Austria was like one of the first. They started um, in 2008 with their first online media. And now there's plenty, plenty of extreme right um, media outlets in Austria. It's really, really crazy. And so they're slowly taking over control, but it's building no, it's this propaganda like, um, machine. They build up, they do two things, or they try to do two things. So those who are in the opposition, they build their own media outlets because they can't destroy the public broadcasters because they're in the opposition. Once they're in government, that's what they're doing. We saw this in Hungary, we saw it in Poland, and that was also the plan in Austria, but um, we were lucky we had the Ibiza scandal. So Ibiza scandal, and I, hope, I don't know if you know about it, you know, our vice minister at that time, Heinz-Christian Strache, and his best um, buddy went to Ibiza and had an dinner with a nice lady and they thought she's the I think the niece of an oligarch but she was an actor and um, she was very pretty and there was lots of alcohol I guess and Strache told her um, if she buys the biggest um, newspaper in Austria then she can make nice articles about him and he will become prime minister and all that and um, so he had to step back and um, we had snap elections and so that was the reason why um, we still have public broadcast in Austria which is kind of not totally independent but not like Hungary or not like Poland. So he's caught on tape trying to sell out Austrian media and saying hey if you do this if you buy this well, we can build this empire together. I mean, afterwards yeah. he said it was just a funny idea. <laughs> <laughs> so these parties are trying to build these narratives. They're trying to gain control of the media. But obviously there's also people listening to these narratives and, and buying into them, believing them, and 
especially also we saw this in Sweden and maybe Barat, we can go to you, uh, that a lot of young, educated people who live in the cities, they also voted for the Swedish Democrats. And like, it's not just disillusioned, angry people who feel like, hey, we want to go with this development, like the, all the the richness that these countries are offering. It's also vertical, it's horizontal across the spectrum that people are buying into the narratives of these far-right parties, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important that journalists, researchers, and, and the general public, like, we really stress one point. In the U.S., this is like the the image, right? The people in the South who are not very well educated and who have a lot of guns and drive their trucks with Confederate flags on it, right? And that is absolutely not the case, right? I mean, a lot of this has been framed through the lens of populism, right? That these are all populist movements. And in a lot of ways, that's actually a false narrative because what these movements are doing is saying, here's us, we are the people, right? And the subtext is, here's us, we are the white people. That's what's going on in all of these different countries. It's about a racial identity. You know, it's easy to forget that when we start talking about things like populism. When we start thinking about, oh, it's because these people don't have enough money or, or they're part of the working class and the working class is struggling a lot. And of course, the working classes are struggling a lot. But if we go across Europe, you know, the working class is not all one, one ethnicity or one identity or anything like that. So I think that's one thing that's really important to stress. And uh, I was just curious. I was looking, um, looking at the Eurobarometer statistics. And one of the interesting things that I found that was really interesting is that for those Italians that define themselves as we are working class, about 11% of them put immigration as their top concern in 2022. And obviously for pretty much everybody, energy costs is you know, what we're mostly thinking about as a big stressor, right? But immigration is for about 11% of them. But if you look at the people who are having trouble making ends meet every week, only 3% of them care about immigration. So there's an interesting discrepancy here. And I think one of the things we might wanna think about is how do people identify as working class and whether or not that's actually connected with you know, their economic position. You know, one of the things we need to start thinking about more is like, what is the role of identity? And especially what is the role of racial identity, which we don't talk about enough in Europe. I think that's really where a lot of this is coming from. And it's really about these sort of deep-seated anxieties about sort of more or less racial control over one's society. Um, Nina, another group, or I should say something that interests me is the fact that women are leading these parties. In Italy, we're talking about uh, Georgia Maloney likely becoming the most right-wing prime minister since World War II. In Germany, we have Alice Weidel. You know, in France, we have uh, Marie Le Pen, even though her national front turned national rally party, failed at winning uh, the presidency away from Macron. Why are women in this position. I mean, does this suggest that the new far right or these, I mean, if you want to go as far as calling them neo-Nazis, that they're not sexist? Or I mean, <laughs> why is it that women lead these parties? Because women can also be in a sexist party. I mean, that works. And we had the same in Austria in like 2000. We had the first ever female vice chancellor in Austria in the year 2000. And she was from the Freedom Party, from the extreme right. We can also ask, why not from the left-wing parties? Because there were no women at that time in Austria uh, in this position. Women can also be very conservative. Um, women can also say, um, it's my job to stay at home with the kids because- Yeah, but the men in the party, they tolerate that? Or, I mean- I mean, as you can see, if they're clever, yes, because then um, they 
are more likely to win elections. For example, in Austria, we have now Mr. Um, Herbert Kickel leading the party, and he's very aggressive, and it's very hard for him, him to get new voters. You know, he's got his basis, that's like really hard, aggressive men um, working, um, voting for him, but lots of women don't like that sound. And so that's the same with Le Pen. She did this called depolarization. But it means like um, she wanted to prove that she's not the devil anymore, but she's like a normal person. And that's what all these right-wing parties try, or extreme right parties, the same with the AFD in Germany. They also try um, that people think they're not far right, but they are conservative or they're patriotic. But many people are afraid of voting a far right party. But um, voting for like a, a woman who's kind of conservative is somehow easier for them. I also wanted to just add, you know, uh, another layer onto that. I think one of the really interesting developments in, in sort of the last few years that we've seen is that a lot of these parties have turned to issues around gender very deliberately. So one of the things that we've seen is these parties are saying, we are the party that is going to protect women from these sexually deviant refugees and migrants. Right. And, and that's this kind of dog whistle primarily about Muslims uh, engaging in, in sexual violence. Right. Totally untrue, of course. But it's one of those things that keeps coming back. So we are going to be the party that defends LGBT rights. And so this is a sort of almost a turn to appropriating liberal discourse in order to advance the far right's agenda. It's still grounded in this kind of racism. Right. But it's a way of building on what, what Nino was saying. It's a way of trying to actually launder these movements to make them more palatable. Let me ask you about mainstream parties, Bharat, and what influence are these far-right parties having on them and on their agendas? I mean, I think back to 2015 when Angela Merkel was like, we are shuffling us, we can do this. And how it just completely turned on its head in Germany, and you know, obviously it was a whole different narrative in uh, some Central European countries, Austria as well. And even now, you don't really have uh, this traffic-like coalition being super open to refugees of color. There, It's a different story with Ukraine, and we'll, we'll get into Ukraine a little bit more later, but I'm just wondering, has the mainstream been shaped, and if so, how, by these parties? I think there's probably like two things that I would sort of stress that are really important. The first is the radical right and the extreme right, so all of these far-right groups, uh, all these political parties, present a threat primarily to the voters of sort of mainstream right parties. So the mainstream right parties have to make a decision, right? What are we gonna do? We're losing voters to these folks, right? And so they have been lurching more and more to the right in order to try to stay competitive. So we could think about it as like a, you know, a supply and demand kind of economy, and you see sort of mainstream parties lurching to the right in order to absorb votes and try to stay competitive. Now that's really bad because once that happens, right, you've basically legitimized the far right's position. So in a lot of ways, I think, you know, we should be very, very critical of the mainstream right parties that have basically opened the door in the last few years to do this. And we should also keep in mind, right, that a lot of the ways in which we sort of scapegoat specific minorities, you know, that's Islamophobia in the last 20 years, that didn't come from the far right. That came from the mainstream right. It even came from parts of the center left. Nobody's talking about George W. Bush as far right, 
but he built the entire anti-Muslim apparatus that Donald Trump elevated to an even higher level of power, right? I mean, it was his administration when that happened. So there's been this symbiosis between the sort of mainstream right and the far right. And I don't know if it's an irony, but um, it shows the stupidity of this strategy because they open the door and then they keep losing the votes anyway. So what was the point? Right? They could have actually been protecting our institutions, but out of their own self-interest, they failed. The second is, I think we have to think about uh, the way in which the far right has been particularly successful with working through media systems. And so they've done a really good job of sort of trying to change cultural norms. That's what they refer to as a form of uh, what they call metapolitics, and that's a term with its own history. But the idea is, okay, we're not going to change the political system. Let's change people's political attitudes from the bottom up and try to shift the discourse. Um, and that's been particularly successful, but they didn't get there on their own. One of the key things that happened in the process was that in a lot of Western European countries, especially those that sort of think of themselves as kind of having very tolerant and open journalistic systems, have been basically providing a platform for the far right in the interest of providing a balanced opinion. And so we've seen a sort of blocking off of the far right in sort of mainstream newspapers and they haven't been that successful. But in countries like the Netherlands, for example, there has been a lot of opportunity for the far right to find its way into the, to mainstream newspapers, to be seen as legitimate, and they've been a lot more successful in sort of uh, positioning themselves. So, you know, journalists and mainstream right parties, I think, have a lot of responsibility to think about. But, you know, the, the far right has been very effective in trying to exploit those existing systems. And, you know, I think we can look at those vulnerabilities and, and try to think about how in the future we can try to be more uh, protective against the far right. So I hear you say across the board, racism, race politics, that plays a part in all these far right parties. We talked about how they want to put pressure on the media, whether it's traditional or using new media in order to obviously gain control, put their narrative out there. But what I find so striking, and especially also in the Netherlands, we had anti-immigration parties for a long time already, but now it seems that in almost every European country, there are one or two parties pop up that just tick all these boxes, almost of the playbook that they follow to gain control, but there's another playbook that it's is- It's not my fault. <laughs> But there's almost this other playbook. It's like, okay, we're anti-establishment, we're anti-immigration, but we're also anti-COVID measures, skeptical of COVID measures, actually. We believe in these conspiracy theorists, like big and small ones. Like they all seem to sort of follow the same lines, the same fault lines and try to tap into that. And they learn from each other. They talk to each other. They congratulate each other. So again, what tactics and what new media, whether it's stuff on TikTok or 4chan or all these things, what are they using and what are they tapping into? Is it just anti-establishment or are they really trying to put this extra layer into their political narratives to gain voter base? Yeah. That's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> but isn't it- I have two minutes yes. to answer it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna talk, talk fast. Um, what we saw in the last two, two and a half, three years was that the pandemic really helped these far right um, groups because there was this big, feeling of insecurity in the society. People were afraid of losing their jobs, getting ill, just afraid, afraid about the future. What's going to happen? Um, what's this pandemic? How dangerous will it be? And suddenly there was a big mistrust in governmental politics. So people were fed up. Um, no more lockdowns. Um, we don't want to stay home. We want our normal life back. 
and in Austria, and I would also say in Germany, the far right was very soon leading these protests. So there were not all, not all people who went on the streets were um, right-wing extremists. There were lots of people, what we would call the common people, marching. And in Vienna, there were big demonstrations, really huge. Normally, Austrian peoples never go on a rally. That's very uncommon. It's not like France, where they are like demonstrating every weekend. And we had like 60,000 people marching from esoteric, green, liberal people dancing in the streets with the dreadlocks to well-known neo-Nazis marching together. So it was the first time that the extreme right and the common people met on the streets and had a big party. And the story they told these normal people was kind of clever. They said, okay, the government was lying about corona. It's not dangerous. They um, were cheating you. But have you ever thought about other issues where the government is also lying? Have you ever heard about the Great Reset? Have you ever heard of um, the big exchange? Um, have you ever heard there's a master plan that George Soros, Bill Gates, the Rothschild family, they want all these foreigners coming to destroy your life. And not everyone believed it, but more and more people even heard about that. And they had their media there, they had their newspapers there, their magazines. Like for example in Austria, we have so many of this online media from the extreme right. And if you look at it closer, you can see it's like always the same names. It's a very small group actually. But people who don't really know that, they see, okay, um, this magazine is writing about the Great Reset and the other one also, and there's another one, and there's a TV channel on the internet. So if so many say that's true, it must be true because they all write about it. So Brad, do these overarching theories exist because of what right-wing parties say? Or do they exist and all the right-wing parties try to tap into it because they know it plays out well with their voter base? Like, Is this something that comes from politics or is it something they take from internet conspiracies and other narratives and they all know this is what my audience loves, I'm tapping into this? You know, I would say, if I'm going to give you an easy answer to your question, it's basically that stuff is out there and right-wing parties kind of draw on it. But actually, it's a lot fuzzier than that. So one of the interesting things about these uh, conspiracies is that it really gives people the opportunity to feel like they're putting a puzzle together, right? And that process is actually really quite important in terms of getting people sort of emotionally uh, So they feel like I know more than the others. Exactly. I'm more clever yeah. than the other ones who are all sleeping. That's what they say in Austria or in Germany, that they are awake while the others are still sleeping and they need more time and more information. They are yeah. the woke ones. Yeah. 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 But at the same time, once that stuff's out there, then right-wing parties can come in and exploit it and, and slot it into their speeches and their advertisements and their appeals to voters. They don't usually do it in name, but they'll find a way to, to say it. I mean, Thierry Baudet is one example where he just goes ahead and does it in name. But you know, in other places, it's more diffuse, right? So what you have is this kind of recursive process where there's these networks that seed these ideas, then politicians pick them up, 
media picks them up. And depending on what sticks, that has a little bit more momentum. And I think, you know, we're, we're going to keep seeing these conspiracies rise and fall, right? A couple of years ago, we were all thinking about QAnon, now the Great Reset, you know, and I think what's important is understanding that there's a whole process by which elites, both in the media and in politics uh, on the right, are really benefiting from people feeling like, oh, I'm figuring out, you know, this crazy conspiracy that's out there. But it's really the process of people feeling like, oh, I'm figuring this out. That's really important more than the conspiracy itself, I think. That's what builds the community around it. And that's what politicians and uh, the far right's really, uh, when, when they're trying to get into office, what they're really trying to mobilize. Right, let's talk about topics. And mainly what I want to find out is whether anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, stoking fears over immigration, are those still the best for the far right to sort of pursue voters with? Or have those topics been replaced by COVID, which we've talked about um, somewhat, the Russian war in Ukraine, in economic woes, which are coming upon us fast and furious, like 10% inflation and the widening gap between the rich and the poor? That's quite a tough question, right? Because the salience of these issues ebbs and flows. Now, the core sort of, uh, you know, reason for why the far right does what it does, right? It's really about conserving a particular kind of national or European identity. Usually it's a mix of the two, right? And, and so, you know, I, I feel like academics would probably get bogged down in a debate about whether or not this is so central. But if we look at the sort of French new right as kind of a key set of intellectual movements that shape the far right in Europe today, one of the ideas that I think really resonates is this idea that in the liberal world we live in, we are totally deracinated. We're totally separated from the, in their terms, the soil from which our bodies are from, right? And that, that linkage has been broken. And we need to reclaim that linkage. So there's this really kind of important, you know, this, this is obviously a racial argument. It's, it's not that far away from, you know, what you get from, from Nazis in, uh, in the mid 20th century. What that means is it becomes really easy to slot economic processes into that narrative. So one of the things that we've seen is that anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and racism are at the core of this vision. But it's not necessarily at the core of the appeal. When everybody's worried about costs of living, it's not really going to profit a politician much to start talking about why Jewish globalists and uh, cultural Marxists, and it's not going to benefit them that much to talk about it. But what they will do is say, don't you know about all of the different processes and all of the different secret rooms that are going on that where they're colluding to make your gas cost so much? Um, don't you know about all of these different processes that are happening that you know is uh, the real reason behind the war in Ukraine? So I think one of the things we tend to see is that the far right will try to capitalize on the issues that are sort of relevant at a given time, so cost of living, the economy, et cetera, but then try to connect it back to this sort of more like master frame, if you will, this idea that there's this kind of problem in which, you know, our countries are being filled by people who don't belong as part of the soil, right? This really kind of fascist vision. We have to think about how is it that those ideas get connected back to this sort of idea, we should be working for the people and who that people are, yeah. I've been watching um, right-wing extremist media um, for the last two weeks, like one internet channel in Austria, because I had to write an analysis for a German institute. So it's kind of funny because they can 
like every problem we have in the world, they are able to bring it in the bigger picture. And just one example, they say, for example, the, the climate change is a lie. And um, the globalist agenda is behind the climate chain and the greenhouse effect is a scientific hoax. So why are these global oligarchs pretending there is a climate change? Because they want to deindustrialize Germany and turn it into a backward agricultural country. Um, corona is a lie. So why are healthy people um, said they have to be tested if they have corona? Not because there's a virus, it's a pandemic, they say, but the testing of healthy people is a means of psychologically influencing these people. So the masks and the vaccinations and the testing is just that people start doing what the government wants. You forgot the microchip. Yes. Oh, I have it on my list. No. <laughs> so it's all the big, big thing about the Great Reset. Also, the, um, the energy isn't getting more expensive. Um, the plan of the globalists is to um, make an economic crash, but they can't just take away the money from the people, so they have to say the energy is so expensive, and that's the way how the globalists are destroying our life. And, and once you dig, right? The globalists, really, they're one class of people, right? And it's an anti-Semitic myth. What can these people and everyone listening do? How, how do they identify? And how can they counter these false messages? I'm not talking specifically about internet fora and we're sort of trying to counter these groups, but how can they understand what's part of this broader overarching narrative and what can people do against it to weaponize themselves against it all? I think you have the best, better answers, um, the scientific answers. What I only know is for like more than 20 years in political journalism, if you have like one way leading to conspiracy and the other one for normal reason why things are happening, 99.99999% um, of the times you're on the right side if you don't believe the conspiracy, but just... There are reasons why things are happening. But can you differentiate? Because look at Twitter or look at social media. You know, things are presented as fact all the time. And how many people actually go and check Snope or check, you know? Yeah, but I think, the, like, how does this propaganda work? They need people who are anxious, angry, afraid. Because you need people who are very emotional to believe these stupid things. Because if you're emotional, your brain doesn't really work very well. And if you read something that makes you really angry, put it down, think about it, and read it again 20 minutes later, and ask yourself, is this really possible? Is it really possible that Mr. Bill Gates was waiting many, many years until I'm 45 and I get a chip? He was waiting for Miss Nina Horacek, um, living in the district of Osterkring in Austria, Vienna, and said, I'm so happy she's got a chip now. I'm still waiting for his money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess there's sort of a few different ways we can think about this. And I, I'm afraid I don't really think us as individuals, there's really a whole lot that we can do. I think that there's a lot of systemic issues that we can work collectively to change. And that's probably the best way forward. So one of the biggest sort of responses we've seen is expanding fact-checking. And I think that's a really good development, but we've put way too much confidence into fact-checking as a way out. We're talking about movements of people who are sort of part of this milieu where they believe, oh, 
everything that the establishment media says is wrong. So at that point, if you believe that, then a fact check is never going to have any real effect upon you. And so the thing is, you can't fact check your way out of an emotional argument right? because people are already committed to that. So that means we need to think a little bit more critically, okay, well, what can we do? I think one of the biggest issues has really been the sort of policies of the social media platforms in the sort of in the last 10 years. So pretty much until about 2017, 2018, the social media platforms were like, everything's fine. We're not going to engage in any kind of like real attack on the far right, even though there's all kinds of violence happening, all kinds of racism, right? It was unless you're a jihadist, we're probably not going to take you down for, for our terrorism and hate speech uh, regulations, which platforms had that all the way back to at least uh, 2012. Uh, one of our colleagues is working on this and doing some really great work on this. Now, more recently, there has been the idea of trying to address the far right, but then they've done it in such a way that's really trying to, more than anything else, minimize their risk of being pulled in front of a congressional committee in the United States, which is a majority Republicans, getting accused of censoring the right. right? So their whole process around this is all about risk management. It's not about genuinely and in good faith really trying to take down uh, extremist content. So I think one of the biggest things we can probably do as individuals is think about how do we put pressure on our governments to put pressure on the social media platforms. And there's more and more instruments coming in uh, new laws that the EU's put together to try to address that. The Digital Services Act. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, that codifies quite a bit of sort of some of these responses. But it's, it, you know, it, in some ways it doesn't go far enough. And also in some ways there's not that much you can do also, right? We have to also respect people's fundamental rights to freedom of speech. But again, we're not seeing the platforms balance freedom of speech with other articles in, you know, in the EU human rights uh, charters, which also balances questions about dignity, right? It's been all about free speech while we forget about this other thing called dignity. And so bringing that balance back is important. But the other thing is that platforms aren't going to act until our governments decide to act. And right now, most of the leaders in our governments are trying to thread a needle where they aren't pissing the far right off too much. And again, this goes back to these questions about mainstreaming the power of the far right. So, you know, I think as individuals, yeah, we can be better readers of the news. We can make sure that, you know, we're teaching young and older people how the sausage is made, so to say, in, in the media. We need to keep supporting fact checks. But until we get real about the fact that this has basically been big business for Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey, until we get real about that, I don't really see how we're going to get out of this. And we might take it for granted in countries like the Netherlands and some other places. But yeah, supporting independent media is also really big because we see it in all these Eastern European societies and even in places like Austria, oligarchs, uh, interest groups are taking over. They're buying, literally buying up these media organizations and using the platforms for their narratives. I think that's also something to keep into account. Support independent media. Um, do you want to open it up for, for questions yes, to the uh, we, to the we public? would love to uh, take some questions from the audience. If you could tell us your name and keep the questions as concise as you can. And please come uh, to the front, if you don't mind, um, to the microphone so that we can get you on tape and also hear you up here. Hi, my name is Ibise Vokjira. I'm also part of the podcast network. I, I actually didn't have a question. I just wanted to point out something. You said halfway through your talk that there are a lot of anti-immigrant parties popping up, but in the Netherlands, all parties are anti-immigrant. There is not a single party which is not anti-immigrant at the moment. I just wanted to state that. Even the liberal left ones are all anti-immigrant, and I think that's important to 
acknowledge that it's it has become mainstream. I just wanted to say that. Thank you. So, uh, hi, my name is Jonathan. My question really is this. You guys spent a lot of time about like what's happening and the outlets and all the various parties and how they're popping up and the influence that they're having generally on the population and certain areas of the population. What you guys really aren't really talking about, and you could have a whole other program on this, is why this, why now? That's my question. Do either of you want to take why this, why now? I think why now is one reason is we are living in very complicated times. And I mean, if you think about your future and the future of your children, do you have a happy perspective or are you more afraid of what's going to happen? Like, I can say for Austria, many people have the impression, like before COVID and before the war in Ukraine, they had the feeling like my life might be okay, but I'm not sure if my children's life will be better than mine or even on the same level. And now the feeling is like my life was okay, but I'm really afraid about what's going to happen. And if people are desperate, if people I need, then they need scapegoats. Because it's much easier um, if you can say, okay, we are the good ones, but this group is terrible. And it's so, um, I think it's also kind of a human thing. I mean, it's a good feeling if somebody explains the world to you and you can be angry at somebody, one else for ruining your life. But I'm not a psychologist. My name is Max, and I would like to talk about the last question you asked, or about the answer you gave. You talked about fact-checking, and also about independent media, how important it is, and so on. What I thought is there's also a lack of trust in media, that's the whole topic, right? And there's a relatively new movement, which I would translate as citizen journalism. I don't know about the other countries in Europe, but in Germany there's one web platform where you can learn all the tools a journalist should have for a relatively low price. And this is not to educate millions of journalists, it's more about to give them the tools to understand how journalists work. My question is, do you think that this is a good idea and this could uh, solve problems or is it more like counterproductive? Thanks. What we've started to see more and more is that the sites and the platforms that support citizen journalism, YouTube being probably one of the biggest ones, is a really good place for people to bypass the kinds of gatekeepers that there are in major newspapers. So that can be a really great way for people, for example, to reach an audience and you know tell a story that isn't going to make it through the sort of editorial gatekeepers at something like the New York Times. And if you can build a following, then it can be really positive. But once we sort of said, okay, we've democratized media, right? That kind of happened with YouTube being sort of the banner or the, like the flagship place for this to happen. We've also had a whole myriad of citizen journalists that are part of the far right that claim that, okay, I'm not, but are really part of this uh, kind of movement and are actually driving it forward. So in a lot of ways, giving out those tools is a great way to empower people to challenge the far right. At the same time, training people in those tools 
also gives you know one's uh, one's rivals the same sort of power, right? So here, I think it's it's really good that we have this kind of citizen journalism happening. But the real question is, what are the ethical constraints that people adhere to? And that can be sort of where this stuff starts to break down because you can do citizen journalism, but do it in a reactionary way or an unethical way. There, there's fewer safeguards in news production when it's not professionalized. So that's the sort of balancing act. I'm not trying to say one is good or one is bad, but I think that's the sort of challenge that we have to navigate. So we can take one more short question. Does anyone have a question that they want to ask? Go ahead. Hi, I'm Goya, thank you. I was wondering because one of the differences that I see is that in places like the Netherlands, they use um, the LGBTQ community to propagate like on these anti-immigration movement, but actually in Eastern parts of Europe, you see them utilizing it as part of the far-right movement. And I was wondering, do these differences matter in terms of this international alliance or is it, will they just say whatever appeals to local voters? So, I mean, I can only give you my speculation here. I don't think that the far right anywhere cares about protecting LGBT people, right? They, only they, if the one who's um, beating them up is a, mig a migrant. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah. Yes, they only care insofar as it is some kind of ammunition that they can use. Even when they're lesbians. I just want to point out, Alice uh, Weidel is a lesbian who is in a relationship, and she does not advocate for, uh, no, LGBTQ. I have never heard that yeah. the AFD is um, for same-sex marriage. Not at all. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's purely instrumental. And I think that, you know, I, I don't think that there's many in the LGBT community who are going to be duped by this. Um, but we can show example after example, right? Once they're done persecuting immigrants, they're going to move on to the next set of people, right? And any kind of minority that doesn't fit with their specific heteronormative white vision of what Europe ought to be is at risk. And so when they say, oh, we're going to protect LGBT people from Islam, it's just propaganda and it's an empty claim. They don't care about LGBT people. That is the end of our edited live show in Amsterdam. Thank you for listening. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, and my co-host was Mick Terehost of Are We Europe? Our guests were Austrian journalist Nina Horacek and University of Groningen professor Baraf Ganesh. Helping with the live show and podcast, as always, are Common Ground Berlin's senior producer Dina El-Sayed and our social media editor Stefano Montali. Our podcast is funded by a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. Our partners are the German Marshall Fund of the United States and Goethe Institute. All of our episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at CG Berlin Podcast. And be sure to check out our website, commongroundberlin.com. 